Welcome to Revaluing Care in the Times of COVID-19, a podcast series that seeks to examine the power of care work in the context of the current pandemic. As we navigate this uncertain time of economic, social, political, and environmental turmoil, many feminists, activists, and scholars have declared these troubles as an interrelated crisis of care. Now is a time to reimagine how care fits into our society in a way that is more equal and just. This podcast is part of a broader network of 30 scholars from 16 countries called Revaluing Care and the Global Economy, an ongoing project funded by Bass Connections and the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies Department at Duke University. The Revaluing Care project is developed along three lines of research, metrics of care, governance, and social practices. This podcast series not only shares the core ideas of this project, but also seeks to identify what is at stake in these care issues of our time. First of all, I would like to thank uh, each one of the speakers for their time and uh, their um, uh, enthusiasm to participate in this workshop. First, I would like to introduce uh, formally each one of them. So I am going to start in alphabetic order. Vero Gago, uh, she is professor of sociology at the Instituto de Altos Estudios, Universidad Nacional de San Martín in Argentina, and she's, uh, she also teaches political science at the Universidad of Buenos Aires. Thank you, Vero. And uh, I'm going to continue uh, introducing um, Professor Maya Yon. Uh, Maya Yon teaches at the University of Delhi. She has been researching and publishing on the evolution of labor law in colonial and post-colonial India, the relationship between caste, uh, gender, and the labor market, the history of educational inequality in India, recent anti-rape agitations in India and gender-specific laws at the workplace. Thank you so much, uh, Maya, for joining us today. And uh, now is uh, time to introduce uh, Alejandra Santillana Ortiz. Alejandra Santillana studied sociology at the Universidad Católica de Ecuador and has a master's degree in social sciences from the Social Sciences Latin American faculty, Plaxo. She's currently a PhD student at the Universidad Autónoma de México, UNAM, and she's working on her thesis about the political history of Ecuador's left wing in the 1970s and 1980s. Thank you, Ale, for your presence today. And last but not least, Alessandra Spano. Alessandra Spano is a PhD student and assistant to the Chair of Political Philosophy at the Department of Social and Political Sciences in Catania, Italy. Her research focuses on critical theory, Marxism, and feminist thought, especially gravitating toward female thinkers in the US. She has been actively involved in Nonuna di Meno, the Italian network for women's strike, and is associated with migrants' coordination and precarious disconnections, collectives which organize migrant, precarious, and industrial workers' struggles on a local and transnational level. As you know, the United Nations and local NGOs have, have pointed out that governments' measures to limit contagion in their populations, such as mandatory lockdowns, are linked to an increase in gender violence. In part, this is related to the fact that many women, who are overwhelmingly the ones performing care work, are trapped at home with their abusers. However, I would like to take this as a starting point uh, for our discussion, because in addition to the obvious and severe physical effects that gender violence implies, it is necessary to discuss the other types of violence that the pandemic and the measures taken by governments, private companies, and other institutions have unveiled, so to speak. I am referring to specific problems such as economic precariousness, racist and xenophobic violence, the continuous dismantling of social security, the increase in state authoritarianism, etc. Could each one of you begin by offering an overview of your country's situation, explaining how gender-based violence intersects with, uh, with and reconfigures other kinds of violence during the pandemic? Please, Alexander, thank you. Yeah, first of all, I would like to thank uh, Jocelyn Olcott for this series of seminars and Marta for the care and the attention she has given to set up this meeting and allow us to discuss such urgent issues together. 
I'm happy and honored to have the opportunity to meet also Alessandra, Maya and Veronica in various ways our paths are intertwined again. Uh, the arrival of the global pandemic has certainly shown and made visible uh, the contradiction that women and other movements have fought in recent years. The sexual and racial uh, division of labor, exploitation in the neoliberal market, patriarchal and racial violence, the attack on sexual freedom and the self-determination of women and dissident subjectivities. At the same time, the lockdown and its consequences have affected the, the lives of uh, each of us differently according to our gender, sex, citizenship, and origins, economic status, and conditions. Moreover, the COVID-19 pandemic showed the deep interconnectedness and mutual dependence of different sectors, areas of life, and countries, and regions within the global capitalist system. But the arrival of the pandemic has also encountered forms of resistance, starting with strikes and struggles, over the so-called essential jobs are areas of work where most of the workforce is made up of women and migrants. The unexpected visibility gained was also an opportunity to show the contradiction between the um, essentiality of the work done and the precariousness and the inhumanity of the living condition, so how these lives can be disposal, considered as a disposal. Um, the closure of uh, the borders to the, to the migrant labor force was promptly suspended uh, in Italy to the extent that the market required the labor in agriculture and care work, but also in Mexico, as Marta knows very well, it was um, the same, but as the women for, for um, the migrants coming from Mexico, but as the women of the migrant um, of the migrant coordination assembly said a uh, few uh, few months ago, our lives are equally essential. We have not only arms to put to work, but we have the right to freedom from violence and exploitation that condemn us to a miserable existence. Since the wave um, raised in the United States for the death of George Floyd, many demonstrations have taken place also in Italy, uh, as well as in other countries, uh, to say that no more ra racist violence and its inseparable uh, link with patriarchal violence. The attack on women's sexual freedom through feminicide and rape is shown by impressive numbers, which illustrate how since the beginning of the lockdown, all crimes have dropped, consistently dropped, while those against women have increased at the same time. Domesticity and the isolation have certainly played a key role, but we cannot but denounce how this violence has found institutional le le legitimacy. It is only yesterday news that a man guilty of raping and beating his, uh, his partner uh, a woman has reduced um, uh, has uh, had a reduced sentence and uh, um, because he was exhausted by the sexual life of the women of the woman guilty of having betrayed him. This is by the, the, the in the trial. So, um, moreover, uh, yesterday we also seen a, a principal for um, a chief of school chief. Uh, forbade students, uh, girl students, uh, to uncover their legs uh, in order not to provoke the sexual appetites of male teachers. This shows how in this pandemic and post-pandemic moment, not only do the contradiction we have faced in the past become more visible, more visible uh, but the patriarchal and racial hierarchies come to reinforce a new social order in a moment of crisis of capitalism which, as we know, feeds on crisis in order to be able to form cyclically and reaffir reaffirm itself with greater strength and ferocity. This is happening, for example, through the derogation from national collective agreements requested by Confindustria, the group made up by the industrial chiefs of Italy, uh, or the suspension of women's reproductive health services uh, provided by public health centers 
in order to the, the emergency, to, to, to face the emergency, as well as the enormous amount of additional domestic work required uh, from mothers who have had their children at home from the closure of the schools, or the massacring shifts to which working women in essential sector have been subjected. You see, I understood your question from the point of view, I'm approaching it from the point of view of, uh, you know, looking at this as structural violence. Okay? So how in the pandemic come lockdown condition, how do you see various manifestations of structural violence, which of course goes beyond the very specific gender uh, violence uh, experiences. So, you know, for this, I need to, of course, draw everyone's attention to the migrant labor crisis that, you know, surfaced in, in India. Um, and, you know, they're haunting images and, and, and haunting accounts of how things unfolded since, you know, March uh, of 2020. And still the crisis, you know, persists. Now, um, please remember in India, uh, uh, and perhaps this is true of other parts of the world as well, the bulk of, you know, a large component of, of migrant labor, migrant working class is women, uh, women and even children. Uh, and they have been bearing, uh, this entire section of the Indian working class uh, has been bearing a disproportionate brunt of this pandemic come lockdown. You know? And I really, I'll come back to this analogy, but that's what I want you to think of, you know, from the beginning itself. But it's literally like, you know, this homo homogeneous moment of Corona, you know, everybody's fighting this pandemic or enveloped by it. It's as if you're watching a movie in a movie hall from differently priced rows. And, you know, we are reacting to the scenes on the screen differently and we take back different impacts with us. And, you know, how, the uh, you know, migrant labor, uh, uh, you know, experiencing this whole moment is something very distinct and very, very troubling. I want to just highlight some points, you know, um, in terms of, you know, uh, migrant labor in India, it is the most overexploited, easily dispensable section of, you know, uh, the working class, both men and women. Um, and if you talk in terms of women migrant workers, they are concentrated heavily in the construction industry, domestic paid domestic work, peace rate work in ancillary, ancillary industries of the garment sector, the automobile industry, and many other uh, products. Um, you know, they are uh, concentrated essentially, therefore, in the lowest rungs of the labor market in India, uh, uh, where, you know, low stagnant wages uh, have been the norm even before the lockdown. But now, of course, it's even lower now, the wages. Uh, uh, short-term employment, that seems to be very characteristic of, of, of migrant workers' experiences. Uh, literally no social security net, very irregular wage payments, you know. In fact, uh, in many cases, middlemen uh, who, you know, who employ a lot of migrant workers are even known to hold on to wages and give only part payment because that's one way you ensure that they keep coming to work every day, you know. So it's that kind of a structure, uh, you know, uh, partial wage payment. Now, what I also want to draw attention to is that, you know, uh, uh, our, country, uh, uh, our country's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, declared the uh, lockdown on the 24th of March at 8 o'clock at night in India. Uh, and it was to be enforced uh, from the early, from 12 a.m., so the start of 25th of March, giving barely four hours to people to adjust to the new circumstances. Of course, workers, especially migrant workers, to make plans to get back home to their villages. So there's literally just four hours provided for that. Uh, uh, even in terms of stocking up food, etc., making some arrangements, very little time provided. Now, the thing is that I want to, what I want to emphasize is that he, and this is how Indian state and, you know, even our adult medical fraternity, our intelligentsia, mainstream intelligentsia, uh, and somewhere even the progressive movement has been, you know, buying into this logic of the pandemic, which is singularly focused on one disease and overlooking uh, existing silent epidemics that are plaguing, uh, uh, you know, the Indian population, especially the country's poor. So, you know, it was ironic that, you know, we, we had barely a few hundred cases of COVID-19 in India and we had this lockdown imposed on the 24th of March. Uh, now, you know, in, in India, the migrant workers' ex existence um, you know, is clearly akin to that of no man's land, according to many of us, because the village no longer, the villages from where they come, they can no longer afford their social reproduction. Uh, and uh, the cities, the metropolises, refuse to accommodate them. So this is literally the section of the Indian working class, which is left to fend for itself in any crisis, you know. Um, now, worryingly, the ranks of migrant labor, 
you know, migrant women workers, uh, child, uh, uh, you know, migrant children uh, who are also part of the working, working class that migrates to the city. You know, their ranks are growing and the multifaceted, this is what I draw your, your attention to, is that there's been a multifaceted exclusion uh, of their entitlement to the Indian economy. Hence, you know, nothing was planned in terms of providing them subsistence while grabbing and taking away their work their wages you know so there was no no system put in place there hasn't been earlier also uh, 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 any uh, interest in, in in providing uh, uh, proper subsistence regulation of their work relations earlier it just got magnified in this moment and what we find is that you know literally we see it like you know us here you know progressive uh, women's rights activists here uh, in the movement here see it as a as a as a double exclusion of migrant labor uh, uh, it's an exclusion from government policies. The government doesn't see you, it doesn't count you, it doesn't account for you. Uh, it has piecemeal uh, uh, programs in place for you, nothing concrete. And there's also an exclusion from political parties' programs. You know, and here I'll come back to this point if I get the time. You know, here many of us felt that the Indian left, you know, the mainstream Indian left, be it the progressive women's movement or be it the trade union movement, really failed to assess the situation. Uh, and mobilize uh, 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 this uh, on the basis of this vulnerable situation, mobilize agitated, struggling migrant workers and giving direction to their sporadic you know, protests and struggles. There was a failure to give direction to it, which is why it fizzled out and, and the precarity only increased and continues to uh, exist today. My last one or two points is this, that you know, uh, in response to your first question, that please remember that you know, the migrant uh, uh, workforce in India, the migrant uh, workers in India, uh, you know, they're actually crucial to the circuit of self-valorization of capital, you know, but unfortunately, they still remain numerically unaccounted for in terms of policy, government policy discourse. So government doesn't have proper statistics and figures of how many migrant workers do we have in India. They're conflicting reports. So how are you going to have a law in place to protect them? What kind of social security net are you ever going to envisage if you don't even know the number of workers you're dealing with or thinking about? And essentially, you know, migrant workers, even during the pandemic lockdown, they became visible for the state. They became visible for the state uh, only when they began to pose a law and order problem. You know, they were not willing to stay back and remain trapped in the metropolises without subsistence. So they started walking home. They started trying to, you know, reach home. And we have, you know, horrible accounts, uh, heart-rending accounts of how people, you know, struggle to get to places uh, 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 which they called home, and the way they were, you know, they were harassed at borders, harassed in, uh, on highways, chemicals being sprayed on workers as they, you know, crossed interstate borders. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was just ridiculous. Women who were pregnant, uh, you know, you know, having to stop in the field, and, and that's the kind of institutional violence, structural violence. I'm talking not institutional, structural violence. I'm talking about you having to stop on the highway, find like some, you know, uh, wilderness, uh, uh, give birth. Okay, and then go back to walking. All right, so walking to get back to your village. So that's the kind of scenarios that have that have really left us, you know, uh, very very angry uh, with how you know strategies uh, were not evolved. Uh, uh, now, migrant workers struggled essentially to get food, were turned away from hospitals and treatment for other debilitating diseases. I'll come back to this point. You know, I don't see this text of the pandemic, the COVID nineteen, being the singular prominent disease. Uh, I'm not convinced with this, you know, as a women's rights activist, as a feminist, uh, you know, I, I feel it allowed for a lot of uh, 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 other diseases to take people's lives and, of course, socioeconomic ruination to take people's lives. Thank you so much, Adir Maya, for this very comprehensive uh, and clear explanation of the situation in, in, in India. Could we continue with uh, Bero or Alejandra? For your first uh, question, I... I... I have to share three points. The first one that, of course, here in Argentina, gender-based violence is seriously increasing during the pandemic. Uh, and of course, we have to uh, understand this uh, in connection with especially economic violence, political violence, institutional violence, colonial violence. And um, I think that we have this feminist method of connection and uh, we have been connecting all these kind of different uh, violence because uh, we have been developing this feminist method 
in the streets with the strikes, with the feminist strike and with the assemblies. So I, I think that the first point is that this wider scope or this wider understanding of the crisis, of the current crisis, has to do with a lot of activist work to problematize the language of violence. And especially um, when we try to go beyond the fem femicide as an isolated event. So I, I think that this, this first uh, point is uh, we have this powerful uh, perspective from these feminist struggles and um, we can connect, for example, the growing eviction and indebtedness, for example, uh, with gender-based uh, violence. Uh, we are, for example, um, trying to, to think together what this idea of the home is no place for sexist violence or real state speculation. I think this is a very concrete exercise of political action trying to connect these different uh, kinds of violence and trying to produce this more uh, wider understanding of different violences and trying to also uh, do it as a political tool for activists but also for uh, public uh, understanding and public diagnosis of the current crisis. So uh, this is for me very uh, important because I think that we are also disputing this uh, diagnosis of the crisis and how the feminist perspective is a very central perspective uh, trying to, of course, put this different framework of the crisis. Uh, we are all the time um, trying to to valorize this idea that what uh, this crisis um, um, could be without this feminist valorization of reproductive labor, of this idea of essential labor. So I think this question is very important also to show how uh, the so-called domestic territories are today changing. I think this is another important uh, point because when we are talking about domestic spaces, we are talking about uh, also in, in a wider sense, not only the household, we are uh, talking about these expanded territories of social reproductions, communities, neighborhoods, uh, networks of care, and so I, I think these domestic territories are mapping very effectively how we are producing a community and feminist uh, support in, in, in this moment. Um, we are trying to also um, think the idea of a violence of property, trying to go <laughs> beyond this idea of violence against women, lesbians, trans and travesties, and trying also to connect in terms of violence of property to show how property today becomes visible as the border that each conflict is showing nowadays. So we, we talk about property violence as a reaction that express the power of property that interprets emergency demands driven from below, food, housing, care, etc., as threats to their natural right of possession. So we, we are trying to connect all these uh, conflicts that we are confronting with this idea of um, violence of property. A housing crisis, food crisis, health crisis, care crisis, uh, well also as a, as a sign of different uh, borders of conflict. And also in that sense we are trying to uh, map the different uh, intersections between 
self-management popular feminist networks and the, the claim, the reclaim of uh, public services. I think this is also another terrain of conflict, how we can uh, intersect this demand for public services and at the same time we are uh, organizing self-managed uh, networks. But I would like not to put us different or opposite spaces. I would like to, to think how they are connecting and uh, also uh, showing different kinds of intersections. Uh, the other thing is that the pandemic is accelerating the uh, extractive devices. We are talking about, for example, uh, financial extractivism related to indebtedness, but also um, extractivism in the classical terms against uh, territories. We are looking that in, in Argentina, but also in, in all the, the region. So I think that this intensification of exploitation in these domestic territories, this acceleration of extraction in this wide sense, financial extraction, especially against the more precarious sectors. And also this new scenario of uh, poverty. In Argentina, we have the 50% of the population below the poverty line. Now, so this is the, the, the big image uh, within we have to think about uh, gender-based uh, violence. Finally, I would like to, to, to think how the, the domestic territories, the domestic space, the household, but also this idea of a wider uh, domestic territory is the, uh, a new space of struggles. So I, I, I would like to, uh, to think if we can think together a displacement of the struggle in the streets that is very uh, difficult today to think how these domestic territories are the current spaces of struggles and how the housing is the main <laughs> issue, for example, in, in a feminist uh, perspective, to rethink this dynamic of labor, migration, uh, public services, connectivity, uh, but also um, how to think this extraction and extractivist uh, dynamics from the household. Ali, would you like to um, offer us an overview of the situation in Ecuador? The ideas I am bringing today are part of a collective effort from Parlamento Plurinacional y Popular de Mujeres y Organizaciones Feministas del Ecuador. Ecuador is an Indian country that's a primary exporter, is dependent, extractivist, and has dollarized economy. At present, it's being strongly affected by the second wave neoliberal structural adjustment policies. Taking in mind this scenario, plus President Moreno's stay-at-home decree, I would like to present four premises where different types of violence interlace. Economical crisis and structural adjustment, necropolis and imperialist security agenda, reinforcement of extractivism and indigenous evictions, and the increase and intensification of female workload and unpaid tasks. Well, first, the economical crisis and a structural adjustment that has implied budget cut policies, the payment of the external debt, labor market flexibility, and precarious work. There have been a million unemployed people in Ecuador in the last few months as a consequence of dismissal policies, increasing care work in households, which is mainly performed by women. This has meant a stronger pressure over social reproduction, which deepens the gap in the sexual divisions of labor and the different responses to crisis. Social programs are also being affected by the economical adjustment. Significant budget cuts have been made on important programs, such as programs to reduce and eradicate violence against women. 
the $2 million budget, for example, was cut to $800,000 for state services. And I mean, nothing. Second, the necropolitics and imperialist security policy, a 14-year-long institutional reform and professionalization of and reinforcement of the police force has led to a time which has been described by anti-fascist Action Ecuador as the emergency of fascist characteristics in diverse areas of social life. This combined with policies and politics that decide which lives, which lives are more viable than others, create a hierarchy that plays the unprivileged, the impoverished, the racialized, the young, the immigrant, the LGBTQ+, the women in the place of the workless, the disposable, and the stereotype of the suspect. It is clear that nowadays the neoliberal project to the savage capitalism and the imposition of the elites, such as the oligarchy and bourgeois, will only have the violence, the coercions, and a constant death thread us to, to accomplish their goals. The imperialist security agenda for the region intersects with a crisis of the supremacy of the ruling class. A Colombian comrade described this process as a process of social discipline applied to the deprived and exfoliated young generations, which are intimidated by the police forces and paramilitary groups through fear, death, and impunity. Third, the reinforcement of extractivism and indigenous evictions. Indigenous people are being evicted from their lands and territories. The effects on their cultures and lives reproduce colonialist dynamics and trauma. Oil companies, mining companies, and agribusiness business invade territories, break communities, and perpetuate accumulation by dispossession and differential income. It is the indigenous women and female peasants who guard, look after, and care for nature, seeds, water, the forests, and the jungles. They are the ones who resist and live the consequence of the violence exerted by police and transnational companies under territorial control. Um, for the, um, the increase of intensification of female workload and unpaid tasks. 20% of Ecuador, Ecuador GDP is non-paying work. Women generate more wealth than business, such as construction, you know, constructions area, but our conditions only gets worse. During this global pandemic, for from every 100 women, 48 have been laid off from their jobs, and from every 100 who still have jobs, 57 have had a reduction in their salary. 76% of Ecuadorian women have had an increase in their workload. In this pandemic scenario, patriarchy and reflected in the transfer of value of unpaid care work to the country's economy. Besides Ecuador, indebtedness with the AMF and the whole structural adjustment, the correlation between patriarchy and capitalism is made evident in the aggravate indebtedness of women and the increased reliance of the financial system and on men. At the same time, religious groups in violation of the country's securities, the side of sexual reproductive health and rights policies and work on the reinforcement of negative and misogynistic stereotypes. The fact that every 10 women, seven, in Ecuador have experienced sexist violence is only the corroboration of a violent and patriarchal society, directly affecting our mental and emotional health. All the events in Ecuador has suffering in pandemic times, such as the dismantling of the public sector, shortness of medical personnel, and obligatory lockdown have increased the violent panorama for women. Maybe the smoothest and most consensual interaction that the elites have had with people is through religion. Pro-life and ultra-conservative movement have made a connection with the people through religious conviction and belief, which has affected enormously the collective imaginary and has worked as a tool to create hegemony and social do dominance. How is it possible to take advantage of the window opened by this global health crisis, which has demonstrated the instability of the economic, political, and social order to strengthen uh, transnational solidarity ties? Or more specifically, what political and social organization strategies are feminist movements in your countries undertaking to not return to the world as we knew it before COVID-19? Okay, I think, uh, you know, this, this, this question is very 
for me it's very important because we can bring the hope here and uh, uh, in our lives and you know like to sharing this with uh, with you uh, girls uh, this is incredible because uh, bring us you know like light for to understand you know like this international transnational feminist movement so i think uh, for me and for us you know here like these collective uh, thoughts and and and, and uh, the way that we are doing these things you know after october you know um, and I think uh, all the several times that we had, uh, uh, we went to the streets in these months, you know, to against um, uh, IMF or against uh, all these neoliberal policies. I think what what we bring us, you know, is like first to, to reclaim the streets and public space as a way to face the displacement policies that aim to empty the streets and reinforce the presence of the police to silence any attempt of protest or social demonstration so capitalism and patriarchy have an open door to impose their agendas by the privatization of the public sector. For us, you know, going to the streets is one of the key. The second is the expansion of care networks that combine care and socialization of exciting strategies and experience of women, indigenous resistance and neighborhoods. Third, work together towards assembly process that place the debate on essential jobs and the care economy as a central element of feminist politics, but also of other branches of social struggle and resistance. And well, move forward in the construction and synthesis that includes the diverse aspects of care among others that which has to do with the construction of feminist anti-patriarchal policy but also anti-capitalist and anti-racial you know like against Russia and for us like this plurinational you know way to think how can we um, live in plural in plural you know like in diverse form, ways but also uh, without hierarchy you know um, care as an act of subversion and not an act just of resistance, you know, care to deepen, to deepen other dynamics of ourselves, but also with others. How do we resignify that? And uh, I think, uh, um, you know, like this feminist method that uh, Vero just said is works also for us, you know, I think that the feminist movement now is connecting all the struggles and demands not just in the streets, but also in, you know, like vida cotidiana, you know, in everyday life, you know. I see. Uh, Vero, who, would you like to address this question? Um, yes. Yes, I would like to share two different uh, initiatives that we are part. One is uh, our feminist networks sustain us. This is a campaign that uh, we are doing with a lot of different uh, collectives trying to show how this uh, feminist network are building concrete uh, territories of care of support of health of food sovereignty uh, but also um, trying to uh, dispute the as i said before the political diagnosis of the crisis. I think that um, we uh, try to, to, uh, to think about who is the uh, authority to uh, produce diagnosis of this current moment because uh, we are witnessing a lot of expertise, knowledge about how we can confront this crisis, uh, which are the main problems. So I think that one risk is that the feminist perspective is ignored or put aside in terms of uh, the emergency. So I think that the uh, idea of trying to dispute who is um, naming the emergency and which are the forces that we are deploying in the emergency and how we are for example confronting debt as the solution of the crisis i am referring to debt in the macro level of state debt but also in household debt um, 
And the other campaign that we are um, working on is uh, We Are Essential, trying also to dispute this idea of essentiality, but also trying to, to discuss in a very open and public uh, spaces the risk also that these care networks are uh, the new raw material that will be uh, extra exploited and naturalized also as raw material. So uh, all the images are women with their bodies and with in the soup kitchen and taking care of the uh, neighborhoods and children and and also we are <laughs> trying to think this risk of renaturalization of these care networks and especially this idea of reconceptualizing these care networks as the new raw material for new financial devices in terms of this financial exploitation, but also in terms of this um, political um, governance that uh, take into account these uh, networks, but not problematizing the extra work, the non-paid work, the uh, lack of rights, and uh, of course the um, the possibility of seeing these uh, networks of care as a concrete and practical critique of plunder in those territories. So I think this we can uh, also think these. Uh, networks that sustain us, that sustains our territories and our daily life as a material and practical critique against extraction, against plundering, against the lack of public services, and not just as an existential or material, uh, raw material of uh, these uh, devastated territories. So I think that there is an important tension and uh, as feminist movement and as feminist perspective, we have to confront with these uh, tensions. And also we are um, trying to also to discuss the increases, increasing financialization of the reproduction of life. Because this is also that is a key point to understand how the dispossession of public infrastructure is uh, uh, accelerating now in our countries and how um, these um, peasant economies, uh, self-managed economies, popular economies, feminist economies, uh, economies, the real fabric of everyday life, but also everyday politicization. So, I, I think that this is a very important issue to dis dispute and politicize the diagnosis and who is the authority to produce this uh, diagnosis. And the last one, uh, we are doing a political alliance with the tenant union, uh, just to, to think about this household and uh, as a a strategic place. I think that this idea of, I was saying before, these uh, domestic territories as new strategic spaces and new feminist battlegrounds is also the occasion to think new political alliances, for example, with tenant unions, but also with uh, debtors unions, uh, but also with these uh, networks of care and how to, to put in connection, again, these uh, street struggles with these new uh, domestic territories. You know, how to reconnect and rethink the street struggles from the point of view of this domestic spatiality. Uh, you know, for us in India, um, you know, uh, progressive uh, women's rights activists, you know, for us, our politics, is aimed at at this juncture we are aiming at engaging with much more uh, with how enmeshed gendered realities are with class realities you know the situation how it's unfolded in india 
has forced us to see that. You know, the lower the section of women you're talking about, the poorer the nation or the poorer the country you're talking about, the poorer regions of the world, the more inseparable gender uh, realities are from the class uh, embedded in meshed class realities. Like, so I would just say that this is, this is important for our politics today, that we, that we also accept that there is a differential class experience that's playing itself out in this crisis, a differential class experience within gender, which is playing itself out. And I just like to, you know, connect it therefore to the question of strategy. You know, when, you, when you're somewhere uh, understanding and recognizing that the, the experiences differ, that's accordingly going to inform your politics and what alliances you make, who do you make alliances with, what, how are you going to synthesize struggles and initiatives. So I'll just build up to that point of strategy by, by flagging a few concerns as a, as a trade unionist who's working uh, with domestic workers, paid domestic workers. And that's why it's always important for me to bring in that question, second question uh, on you know, care work and, and, and gender violence. You know, a lot of literature, a lot of you know, assessment has been shared in the public domain in India about how this pandemic come lockdown, you know, really obviously exposed, you know, uh, the burden of housework falling very categorically on women and be it across, you know, lower income families to upper class households, you know, it was back to the kitchen, child caring and elder care was all uh, focused on women and they should be playing those roles. A lot of the literature said, you know, try to, in, in India, for example, has analyzed this moment as you know triggering a lot of domestic violence a lot of you know marital discord because women had to you know these are also women in our metropolises who are in the liberal professions you know they're in paid work salaried work and having to adjust work from home and these new conditions of of domesticity that are being imposed from which they had got temporary relief of a certain kind by bringing in the paid domestic worker who onto whom they sublet a lot of that domestic mundane work now, the reality that I wanted to draw your attention to is that, you know, what is missing generally in the analysis is the way in which women's domesticity and the lockdown has a very strong class angle to it. And that is the dynamic by which upper class women have been subletting their work to the paid domestic worker in India. Please recognize the country where I come from. And it's true of many South Asian countries is that, you know, there is a lot of stigma attached to manual housework, care work in the, in the household. And uh, there's cheaply available labor that mentioned in my earlier response, migrant labor, who is tapped in our cities, brought in on very low wages to do all kinds of housework. And it's actually like a preference, you know, uh, where, you know, you have middle class and upper class households, you know, employing this kind of cheaply available labor and not investing in household appliances, uh, because it's also seen as a way of cost cutting. There's this labor on cheaply available labor on one side, why do you want to spend higher electricity bills? Why do you want to, you know, make this investment in appliances? Just use this cheap child and female labor. You know, so these are the kind of dynamics. And so I, I want us to draw attention to the fact when I keep saying differential experiences have played themselves out and our politics has to evolve on that, has to recognize that and strategize accordingly. Is because please, I mean, I think, I think very important for us to understand there's no one kind of domesticity and there's no one kind of domestic care experience. You know, uh, it's important to realize that, you know, and this is what the pandemic come lockdown in India has revealed very clearly that, you know, the, the, the private public divide of uh, in the world of social relations is not high, is not only highly gendered, okay? I'm, of course, I'm recognizing it's a highly gendered space, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not just that women are predominantly responsible for the private, but this, you know, this divide, public-private divide is also class oppressive given the marked contradictions between female employers and female domestic workers. Now, although more privileged classes of women have historically, uh, you know, uh, over a period of time resolved the question of domestic responsibilities, uh, women's domestic role, gender roles, by sub substituting their personal self with the paid quote-unquote help, the pervasive image of women's gender role and the gender image of housework has never itself been substituted. You see, it's become easy to push back women to household mundane work because, you know, through our uh, temporary solution of paid domestic work, we didn't actually change the gendered image, the undervalued image of this work itself. And so when the domestic worker couldn't report to your condominium to work every morning or every evening, you had to step in and play that role. So we didn't actually challenge the logic of gender domesticity anyways. So it came back to haunt us. And I would just like to you know, connect this point to the fact that you know, we have to remember that the majority of women's condition in any given country, what's the, what's the condition of the majority of women? It's exploited, 
uh, oppressed, and that is what determines even upward mobile middle class, upper class women's experiences. So I would say that's actually the absent cause, the larger socioeconomic vulnerability and oppression of this large uh, section of women who are, you know, from, from the lower section of society, from the working class. That's actually the absent cause, which overdetermines the experiences of even upper and middle class women, professional women in, in professional uh, jobs, etc. I'd like to just conclude by saying, you know, we therefore unpack the text, deconstruct the text and of the pandemic, develop a holistic approach, synthesize existing struggles, seek alliances, uh, uh, you know, that are consciously waging struggles on the question of life, livelihood and liberty. Uh, I think we don't introspect, we don't see the class differences, the racial differences, the caste differences that play themselves out while gender experiences are, you know, unfolding then, you know, if we don't introspect, we don't synthesize, then we'll fall, you know, we fall prey to farcical repetitions. You know, pandemics have come and gone. The Spanish flu, 1918-1919. You know, what have we learned from that? There's so many other epidemics out there. Diseases become part of human life. But, you know, how are we actually taking these volatile situations and transforming them, both in terms of gender relations, class inequality, racial inequality, etc. So I think we should, you know, we should not return back. Definitely it requires us to synthesize struggles in a way that we don't return back. Finally, uh, um, Alessandra, would you like to add something to this question? I think that uh, one of, on the one hand, uh, the feminist uh, movement as succeeded through the global and transnational character of the women's strike and its ability uh, to challenge the established order, uh, both symbolically and in terms of material, social and economic relations, to make visible the contradiction that, that exploded with the pandemic and that we are facing today. Together with, with, its, with its capacity to build transnational connection that have resulted, for example, in the, trans, in the Manifesto Transfronterizo, was uh, realized in the last uh, in the last April, for example. On the other hand, it is faced with a, this movement uh, has to face with a new and difficult challenge, namely how to produce communication and organization between between a plan made up of activists and militants and the plan of the millions of women who, since the lockdown and the consequence of this health, economic, and social crisis find themselves isolated and stuck between a labor market that either exploits them under even more ferocious conditions or push them back into unemployment. And a patriarchy that wants to systematically reduce their spaces of freedom and autonomy, autodetermination. So let us not forget that care war continues to be for millions of women and especially for those poor and migrant women, the name of their exploitation, of the, of the daily exploitation ascribed to them on the basis of sex and gender, whether it is done in change of a salary or as free work. A particularly enlightening case uh, has been in Italy, certainly uh, that to one of the school. The closure of the school has caused, uh, on the one hand, an increase in the workload for teachers, mostly women, and calling the name of an injunction of the symbolic uh, of the maternal its uh, identification as a female mission to sacrifice more time to fill the gaps of an improvised online education. On the other hand, uh, other women, especially those forced to continue work to continue working factories in the large organized food distribution in cleaning and healthcare sectors have had to sacrifice part of their wages and time to make up for having their children uh, at home. Um, the economic bonus paid by, um, by the Italian state to babysitters has been just derisory. Only 600 euros per month increased by double for some sectors considered essential, but from which the most exploited and poor workers, such as cleaners, supermarket cashiers, uh, were absolutely excluded from. In turn, this economic contribution is uh, a measure of the salary of another woman, the babysitter, a form of father devaluation of, uh, of the salary of her work, often carried out uh, 
we know uh, by, for example, migrant, a migrant woman. This shows us how in the field of care and social reproduction understood not only as reproductive and care work, but also a form of a production of sexual and racial differences that allow the, soci the society of global neoliberal capital to continuously reproduce itself as hierarchical. In this sense, what we are trying because we don't have a solution right now, we are just uh, have efforts. <laughs> um, uh, what we are trying to do is, uh, firstly, to bring to the, to the very center of our feminist reflection, as well as our political initiative, to take seriously how the social reproduction of capital is a, a battlefield where the different living conditions of women are not recomposed naturally, but are set against each other by the neoliberal market that develops on transnational chains of production and reproduction. Secondly, we need to, re to reinvent our new forms of communication and organization between the plan of feminist militants and activists and the real movement of all these women who continue to fight even in individually against patriarchal racist and capitalist oppression considering the fact that if contagion rates continue to rise which we may have to give up uh, to not have the opportunity to reproduce those moments of uprising, of a, a um, collective force that has been the, the 20, uh, 25th November and the 8th March. I think about other political forms that can supply this luckness and to put ourselves always in, in a systematic connection with the real needs of the women that are not already with us, are not already in our assemblies, that of course now are facing even more, uh, even worse condition of life. I would like to add something. I, I think that this class dimension that Maya uh, is uh, addressing is uh, very important and very strategic. And uh, I would like also to share that here in Argentina, the feminist movement is all the time trying to um, uh, practice this kind of assemblies where uh, we um, meet from very different experiences, from a very different uh, vital and political uh, trajectories. And these um, are I think a, a way of uh, produce proximity between very different struggles, very different uh, trajectories, and also persons uh, which class origins are very different. And also uh, I think this idea of transversality of our feminism is uh, very important to think how we are composing these different uh, dimensions of uh, uh, our feminism. Uh, for example, we are nowadays trying to organize different assemblies related to these uh, care networks, land occupations, uh, uh, resist against evictions, uh, trying to uh, discuss in a very public way uh, a feminist wage or a feminist salary. So all these dimensions of uh, debate but also political practices are um, developed or deployed in uh, very transversal political alliances and I think this uh, political effort to, to weave and to, to uh, nourish this fabric of uh, political intelligence. I, I would like to to ask Professor Olcott for her her final remarks since we are running out of time. I, um, I, first, I just wanted to thank all four presenters. This was really um, amazing, and I'm so. Uh, for those of you who are just sort of getting familiar with this project, it it, it sort of 
we sort of took it on the chin when uh, COVID hit. And uh, thanks to mostly to, to like Tanya and Martha and Yan Ping and these graduate students who are like, buck up and you know, let's keep going. Uh, the, the CARE project, we, we've gotten back. We have some um, funding to, to do some programming this year. So this coming year, and uh, I would be really excited for um, all of you who have participated today to think about seeing if there are other ways that we can collaborate around this question about reimagining what the economy might do, an economy sort of more in service of care. Um, so thank you all so, so much for uh, really a fantastic conversation and, um, and to Martha, of course, for putting this all together. It's really been, um, anyway, so thank you uh, once again, and hopefully we can keep these conversations going.